Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and so excited. It's the final Film Week of 2023 jam-packed wall-to-wall with reviews. We have so many films to talk about being released in the last two weeks of the year. And to take us through all of these high-profile films, Amy Nicholson, who is film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unspooled, Manuel Betancourt, contributing editor at Film Quarterly, and Charles Solomon, animation historian and author and uh, critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Magazine. We begin with Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, the action-adventure film returning Jason Momoa as Aquaman. James Wan, the director, uh, also uh, the screenwriters include Wan and Momoa and David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Amy, please tell us about Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. I will. Um, this is sort of the last and in the incarnation of the DC Comics superhero universe that we've had for about the last decade. They're probably going to shut the whole thing down, reboot again from the beginning with like new players for all of these parts. Um, but of course, they've got to go out with like one more Aquaman because the first one, when it was made in 2018, made over a billion dollars. And it feels like we got to make this sequel, but they made this sequel maybe not completely getting what people liked about the first one. People saw this first one, and the main thing they talked about when they came in or came out was like this six second shot of an octopus playing the drums. You know, just this little weirdness <laughs> of this aquatic world. And in this movie, they bring back the octopus, but they don't let him play any drums. He's just an octopus taking part in yet another heist. This movie is nothing but like back to back heists. We got to go here. We got to go get this thing. We got to go somewhere else. Blah, blah, blah. Repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, I do say that I like Momoa in these movies. He has this kind of like easy dude bro charisma. He plays this superhero kind of like he's the dude in Big Lebowski. He wears a bathrobe for like a big quarter of this movie. But then he's also got this like 50 inch chest. He looks like a superhero just kind of naturally, just sort of effortlessly. And then when he puts on the shiny suit, takes off the bathroom, puts on the shiny suit, you're like, that is a man with a lot of abdominal muscles. Um, I like the design of this movie. I like the casting of it. You know, I like seeing Dolph Lundgren stand around in an armored toga talking about, like, ancient Atlantean sonar equipment, which, if you're wondering what that is, that's whales. Um, <laughs> you know, I like seeing, like, him piling around with Jonathan Reese davies who's, like, voicing a giant crab. I really just wish this movie was allowed to get goofier without feeling obligated to hit all of these, like, expected superhero beats, you know, the battles and the threats of the end of the world and all of the explosions. I felt like when I was watching this movie, I would just see some cool design underwater that I wanted to take a better look at, and then it would explode. And that got really, really frustrating. Um, and also, I feel like this movie has to be the last time that any character walks around with Born to be Wild as their theme song. I just cannot take it anymore. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, starring Jason Momoa, Patrick Wilson, Amber Heard, Ben Affleck, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and Nicole Kidman, directed by James Wan. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. All of Us Strangers is written and directed by Andrew Hay. It stars Andrew Scott, Paul Meskel, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell. Manuel. This, this is absolutely one of my favorite films of this entire year. Uh, it's this touching, soulful, haunting kind of love story that follows um, the screenwriter who's living in mostly in a, an abandoned building, like no one's yet moved in. And he makes a connection with a very sexy stranger uh, and also eventually ends up uh, meeting his young parents who had died in a car crash decades earlier. And we're not quite sure how this is happening, but the conversations he gets to have with his mom and his dad uh, and with this stranger end up all circling around how 
we can move on, how we deal with grief, how we connect with others. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's heartrending. Andrew Scott, who plays the lead and who people might know as the hot priest from uh, Fleabag, uh, provides this like beautifully layered performance of what it means to be a gay man who's trying to untangle his grief for his parents and his loneliness uh, and trying to turn it into art. And it's... I. I, I, I was in tears the first time I watched it. I was in tears the second time I watched it. I'm like choking up even thinking about it now because I think it's just, um, it features one of the most intriguing and surprising coming out scenes in recent American cinema. I can't think of a better film to be recommending this week than All of Us Strangers. Wow, that's high praise. All of Us Strangers from writer-director Andrew Hay. Amy. Yeah, Manuel's really right. This film is just absolutely stunning. I mean, it is mostly done with just like people having conversations, you know, but the conversations illustrate so much about generation gaps just in the, the life that we've all been here. You know, his parents died right before the kind of relative enlightenment we're living in now, and they have a lot of questions. You know, they mean well, but they ask some <laughs> things that are sort of rude that he has to kind of like explain. And meanwhile, he's having this kind of strange relationship with his younger neighbor who's raised in a slightly more progressive moment but you also get the sense from the way that he's talking that while attitudes might have changed on the surface he doesn't seem that much happier you know and so it's it's a really fun little thorny movie you know when his parents are asking him questions like why are you so isolated is it because you're gay the answer to that i think is very complicated you know very complicated like how was he raised around them how is how is he finding his place in the world you know it, it's a chilly movie but you really do grow to care about all four of the characters and the ending which i will not say anything more about yeah i will just say that it is a very romantic and sad gut punch it yeah. it sounds so nuanced and layered and that it's even difficult to explain fully why it's such a moving film yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think it, it, it does come down to the amount of emotion these four actors, so Claire Foy, Jamie Bell, Paul Mescal, and Andrew Scott, they, they really are doing a lot um, between the lines in trying to capture this mixture of love and grief and anger and frustration, but there's also a tenderness and, and sort of it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a movie that's brimming with emotion without being sentimental. And I think that's such a fine line to tread that I'm, I was just, I continue to be in awe with what Hay did. All of Us Strangers, Andrew Hay, the writer-director, Andrew Scott stars in the film. It's rated R, and you can see it at the Landmark Theater Sunset in Hollywood, the AMC Century City 15, and then beginning January 5th, it expands into more theaters. Uh, All of Us Strangers has also been nominated for three Independent Spirit Awards, including Best Feature, Best Director, and Lead Performance for Andrew Scott. Migration, an animated adventure in wide release. It's written by Mike White and directed by Benjamin Renner and Gilo Holmesy. Charles, what did you think of Migration? This is not the worst animated film of the year, but it is <laughs> the biggest disappointment. Uh, Benjamin René, he's French, uh, directed a couple of years ago the hysterical and charming Big Bad Fox, Le Grand Renard Méchant. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that we all loved. It was made really on fun. a shoestring. It was hysterically funny. And he fell into the abyss of illumination. This is about a family of ducks. They've never migrated because the father is overprotective. They're safe on their lake. He doesn't want their kids to go out and, and possibly get into trouble. And then they set out on a journey to the Caribbean And, gee, he's still the overprotective father, and he won't let his children do anything, and they have to prove themselves when they get into trouble. I mean, where have we seen that story before, and how many times? Um, It's also a nonstop talkathon. These birds never shut up. And a duck bill is really difficult to try and do lip sync with in 3D CG. It's... It just doesn't assume the shapes that your mouth does to form the vowels. So it's strange looking. You know, with with Daffy or with Donald, it's drawings. You can distort them. You're only seeing them from one perspective. But with something 3D, you're aware, how is that flap thing going? So just so disappointed because we expected René to continue to be as funny and imaginative uh, as he had been at that film. Um, but this is what happens when you 
go to work for a, a you know a big studio. I guess. Well, and and with uh, a screenwriter like Mike White, who's done the White Lotus, of course, the very popular and acclaimed television series, um, and and you know so many other. Uh, films that he's done that have been very but, well received, but not a lot of them are about ducks. Uh, no, this is this is a landmark for him. <laughs> Migration is in wide release and it's directed by Benjamin Rene Gillahomsey. Mike White is the uh, screenwriter. It's rated PG, and again, you can see it throughout Southern California. Coming up on Film Week, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the sports biographical drama The Iron Claw, starring Zach. Efron, the musical version of The Color Purple, which is out and uh, directed by Blitz uh, Bazawoli. Uh, we'll also hear about Ferrari, which is directed by Michael Mann and stars Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari. That's coming up on Film Week with our critics. Joining us are Charles Solomon, Manuel Betancourt, and Amy Nicholson. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Manuel Betancourt, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. Next up, the sports biographical drama The Iron Claw, starring Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White. Sean Durkin is the writer-director. Manuel, please tell us whose life is being portrayed here. So this is the film focused on the Von Erich um, wrestling family that are sort of quite legendary because their father was huge in in the wrestling um, arena, and then the his sons, all of them eventually sort of worked their way up, and so this is sort of like a very all American saga, and it's a sports drama. Um, it's also focused on the curse of the Von Erichs, because um, if you know anything about the Von Erichs, which I did not do, I but now I do after this, uh, they are marred by tragedy over and over again. Uh, and I won't spoil it because I think it, it sort of does build um, throughout the film. But it's also a film about an overbearing father truly expecting a lot of his sons about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a wrestler, uh, and what it means to be a Von Erich. And he can be very tough on his kids and it hardens them. Um, in in ways that they find quite wounding. And sort of we're following, um, you know, Durkin sort of creates this kind of like Greek tragedy-esque um, story and narrative for them where like they're quite, uh, they're about to sort of be really successful and then a tragedy strikes and then another tragedy strikes and then another tragedy. And sort of it, it becomes a little bit overwhelming. And at the heart of it is Zac Efron, uh, who you may know from, you know, the high school musical films or Neighbors. Um, and he's truly transformed and he has sort of this like chiseled physique and he's really inhabiting um, the this Von Erich wrestler who can never quite live up to his father's um, image or uh, idea of himself and the punishing way that he tries to sort of move through the world. Um, it has a lot to say about masculinity and about family and about brotherhood and about um, how it is that we can sort of harden ourselves and lose part of ourselves when we're doing um, all of these things. Uh, but to me, it, it ended up being a little bit hollow. But Efron gives it his all. He's also joined by Jeremy Allen White, who you might know from from The Bear, playing yeah, another Von so Eric. He's so good. And the wrestling scenes. And I will say this, as someone who is not a big fan of wrestling, like Durkin really immerses you in this world about um, how the fine line between what's real and what's not real in wrestling and how it's a sport, but it's also a competition, but it's also a performance. Uh, 
it, that has all really interestingly sort of knotted together in in the storyline. We should mention this is professional wrestling. Yes, so professional. this is this is the choreograph. This is not like college. Right. No, there's there's capes and there's characters and uh sort of there's a lot of um a lot of really weird looking singlets and a lot of weird looking haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds fascinating. The Iron Claw is rated R, written and directed by Sean Durkin. It's in wide release. The Color Purple, the musical version of uh, the production, stars Taraji P. Henson, Danielle Brooks, Coleman Domingo, Corey Hawkins, Her, Halle Bailey, um, Felicia Pearl, and Posse, uh, and the film is directed by Blitz Baza Wule. Uh, Amy, what did you think of this new version of The Color Purple? This is a tricky one. This is a really tricky one. I mean, this is a powerful story that has undergone a kind of rather unnatural mutation, it feels like, from tragic novel to tragic movie to splashy stage musical to even splashier movie musical. You know, it it has this kind of glitz that kind of contrasts with sort of the heart of like Alice Walker's story, which was this, you know, tragedy of a woman named Celie who has been abused her whole life in really horrific ways. Um, And then finally in the second half of the film kind of finds empowerment through this community of a woman of women and they build each other up and now there's like splash musicals that seem to make a lot more sense than the first act where you're like this is so miserable and everybody is singing and what is happening um it's 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 a weird time for this movie to come out it's kind of it's a hard time you know the movie american fiction that just came out a couple uh, weeks ago sort of a shot an elbow at films like this where it's like can we get past a period of telling stories about the black experience that only hinge on race and suffering And it's also a tricky time because this movie, I think, really needs to appeal to, like, the church community. And so a major subplot um, involving, like, you know, a queer relationship is also kind of downplayed as much as it can be in in this version of the film. So a lot of people are going to come into this and sort of walk away unhappy. But that said, there are moments in here that I think do have a lot of zip. The main woman who plays um, Celia is Fantasia Barino. She won American Idol in its early incarnation. Great voice. Powerhouse voice, powerhouse performance. There's a lot of performances in here that I do think are going to get a lot of like awards attention, particularly Danielle Brooks. She has kind of that like really crowd pleasing role as like a woman who comes in sort of like completely like a, a a barrel of energy, you know, and you love watching that character and you really root for her. There's some dance numbers in here also that I do think have fun with the staging. Like Corey Hawkins, he plays one of the the younger terrible men. Um, he has a great bit where he's like dancing around with wooden planks. There's moments in here that also remind me of like my favorite film, Pennies from Heaven, where they kind of go inside black and white movies and they sing and they kiss. And there's a lot of vintage staged razzle dazzle. Um, but boy, is this a lot of movie. Boy, is this a lot of movie. <laughs> uh, Manuel, you're responding similarly. I, I, it, it is so much movie. And it's also, um, it's just trying to cover so much ground. Like Walker's novel, it's sort of so expansive. And, you know, it, it's it's decades that you're following Seeley. And the movie just needs to keep going. So it's like, and then the next summer, and the next summer, and the next summer. And it, sometimes it feels like you just want it to slow down. And sometimes when it does slow down, it can be very moving. And it can be very, very affecting. But then it'll... Then it has to do a dance number, and then it has to do, and the, the tonal changes are so jarring sometimes. And there's a kernel of a great movie, I think, hidden underneath. And you know, for anything, for anyone who I think saw the Broadway revival that starred Cynthia Erivo a few years ago and Daniel Brooks, um, it was pared down, and there was a way in which they were able to sort of really bring Walker's novel and marry it to this sort of like kind of sort of performance space. But the movie needs to go big and loud. Uh, and at times it works really well, and at others it's just you're you're just wondering what is happening. Um, but those performances, uh, it's a lot of talent. It's screen. a lot of talent. Taraji P Henson, who so rarely gets to do this kind of like. So many people don't know that she's a trained singer and that she can do this sort of in her sleep. And she's taking such joy in performing uh, this character. Um, so I think, you know, if you love the musical or if you love the novel or if you love any of these people, I think you're going to have a great time, uh, even if it doesn't all quite sort of come gel together as, as well as it could. All right. We're talking about The Color Purple, the musical version adapted from the stage production, itself adapted from the film, which, as Amy laid out, was adapted, of course, from Alice Walker's novel. The film is directed by Blitz Bazawule, and it's rated PG-13. Christmas 
2023 wide release opening of the film. Ferrari, a wide release Christmas Eve opening of the Michael Mann directed film written by Troy Kennedy Martin, starring Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari, Penelope Cruz and Shailene Woodley lead the cast. Manuel, what do you think of Ferrari? Ferrari is like two great films that they collide and they don't quite work as one great film. Because uh, I think on the one hand, uh, Michael Mann is trying to tell this like marital drama between Ferrari uh, and his wife, played by Penelope Cruz, who basically steals the movie. Like She is a, a fiery performer who can just give you this kind of scorned woman who is, is trying to deal with the grief of having lost a son and how that's affecting their marriage. So you have this sort of like marital drama here, but you also have a sports racing drama where you have Ferrari uh, needing to win this 1977 um, race in order to sort of... Um, correct like set up his business so that it can do um better and the two movies quite literally collide in a moment that will audibly make you gasp like i have not had that experience with many films where i think i'm watching a film and i'm sitting down and you know it's it's a racing and then something happens that actually made me audibly gasp because i could not i it just it's so and maybe you know the story of what happened in 1957 in that in that race but i was blindsided and you know man is a great director and he really nodges up that tension i don't know if these two films sort of quite quite work together but there are so many pieces mostly penelope that you're just you can't take your eyes off of her set in 1957 enzo ferrari's story we're talking about ferrari amy yeah, I mean, the film does take a, a while to get going this idea of it being sort of two movies fused into one it felt kind of like a it reminded me of when I used to live in colder areas. You're trying to start the engine on a really frozen day. I mean, the early scenes are just a lot of people standing around in cemeteries as you get to understand all of the people who have already died. Um, there's a lot of, of doom and gloom, and you're sort of staring at Adam Driver, who plays um, Ferrari, especially in the early scenes. It's just like the ultimate cool customer, kind of hiding behind sunglasses, not putting out a lot of emotion, you know, being very much at like kind of a removed distance. I mean, it's funny. Some Italians are mad that Adam Driver, you know, a non-Italian, is playing Ferrari. But I was very thrown off that Adam Driver, who is around 40, is playing a 60-year-old man with gray hair and ridiculous wrinkles. And you sort of want to say, did we have to do that? Couldn't we just find an actual 60-year-old man? (laughs) There's no reason. He's not jumping around in time that much. It's, It's very strange and kind of took me a while to get into the movie that way. Um, but yeah, when it gets going, it definitely does get going. And Penelope Cruz just steals this movie because this is a character who's dealing with her husband who, you know, not only is he cheating on her r- relentlessly and rather remorselessly, um, she is an owner in the company. She's got all of these different competing loyalties and she wants the company to do good. How much does she want him to do good? Mm. And the way these loyalties sort of stack up inside of her, she does it so well. Yeah, it sounds like tremendous acting. Michael Mann directing. Troy Kennedy Martin wrote the screenplay of Ferrari, starring Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. It's rated R, Christmas Eve opening of the film in wide release. Coming up, we'll hear about the German drama The Teacher's Lounge. Uh, The film Society of the Snow, about a 1972 plane crash and a fight to survive. And we'll hear about the romantic comedy Anyone But You, among other films coming up right here on Film Week. It's Film Week on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Charles Solomon Amy Nicholson and Manuel Betancourt. They've been telling us about this huge week in films. You know, the last two weeks of 2023 are seeing some of the biggest releases that we have all year. Many of these films vying in their Oscar qualification runs to be included in the Oscars to be handed out next year. And that gives us a chance to talk about uh, some real cream rising to the crop uh, top at the end of the year. And um, we're hearing from our critics about not just American films, but uh, one's international as well. And that's our next one, The Teacher's Lounge from Germany, a drama 
that stars Leone Beanish uh, and Michael Klammer. The film is directed by Ilker uh, Chatak and is written by Johannes Dunker and, uh, and Katak, uh, Chatak, the director as well. Amy, please start us off on The Teacher's Lounge. I will. This is a film that I could definitely see making an awards run. It's it's very fun and very score-worthy. It's, it's a real microcosm of idealism and arguments and struggle and fights and honesty and truth and everything just going wrong when you're really trying to be fair and reasonable. <laughs> the story here is that you have kind of a young and idealistic teacher working at a school and the school is being beset by theft problems. And everybody behind the scenes is not quite sure how to handle this. Some people want to shake down and interrogate kids. The movie opens with like kind of a, a pretty harsh interrogation of some two young kids trying to see if they can get them to rat on their classmates. And our teacher, you know, who's, who's played by uh, Leonie ben- Bench, she really takes like kind of a kinder, gentler approach. She wants everybody to feel respected. And in doing so, she starts down this path that really just winds up with her getting punched in the face. It is a crazy, crazy, crazy film that way. Um, the it, I kind of kept thinking as I was watching this, like this would make a great double feature with Election. You know? Oh yeah. Right. Which is Election. It sounds like yeah, yeah. Election, such a great film. That movie holds up so well. By the way, in fact, I think it's more prescient than <laughs> ever. Um, and I wonder if this one will feel the same way because what you're having in here is kind of these same conversations about what what is the role of ethics in schools? Can we actually be reasonable? Because as the situation goes further and the school kind of divides into factions of how this problem of thievery should be resolved, how the people who are accused of the thievery should be punished, whether they've been punished too much or not enough, everyone is sort of yelling that they have rights, everyone is making demands, and everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. We're talking about the Teacher's Lounge, a German drama. The way you're describing sounds like there could be some openings for sort of dark comedy. Is there any of that in there? I think so. It's it's almost, almost, not quite teetering towards the, the, the train of like the office or okay, something like yeah. that but nobody looks yeah. at the camera if Where they look so at the camera that, yeah. then you'd have the office the teacher's lounge Manuel what do you think yeah this is fantastic because it uh, as Amy describes it at every moment you end up yelling no 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 stop 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 you're, you're not supposed to do that or like oh that's not what she was hoping that would happen because at every point she thinks she's She's trying to make principled decisions and decisions that uh, sort of are in line with the kind of ethics that she wants to model for her students. And at every turn, it just ends up making everything worse. And of course, you sometimes would understand that if you're dealing with just adults who are sort of, you know, you have the administration, you have the faculty, and you have her herself, and she's a little bit of a, she's a new teacher. So there's a little bit of like an outsider-ness and she's trying to fit in, but she also wants to um, be cool with the students and have her respect her. Um, But of course, as soon as it's sort of like a powder keg, as soon as it starts, everything just devolves. Um, And there's a lot of really incredibly nuanced and thorny talk about racism and discrimination and bias and how even as you're trying to be aware of your blinds, blind spots you keep sort of messing up uh and then i don't know it's it's so fascinating and you really don't know where it's going and it's kind of nerve-wracking the entire time as you're talking about saying no no i think we should do a whole set what are the films where you end up talking back to the characters the most because i i've had that experience to myself don't do that of course they do yeah, of course. They do. And in this one, and this one, it's even towards the final moments. You're just like, oh god. And it's 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 both bleak and hopeful at the same time because there is hope in that, like, oh, there are people who are trying to always do the right thing, uh, and also enough people who really don't even know what right can look like, or they think they know it's right. right. I got really caught up in a little detail here, a little subplot of the kids who run a newspaper and they're really yelling about freedom of the press, which I want to be so much online with. But here I was like, I don't know, kids. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it sounds captivating. The Teacher's Lounge, drama from Germany. Uh, the film is directed by uh, and co-written by Ilker Chatak. It's rated PG-13 and you can see The Teacher's Lounge uh, starting Christmas Day at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Society of the Snow takes us back to 1972. The Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 chartered to fly a rugby team to Chile. 
and it catastrophically crashes on a glacier in the heart of the Andes. Only 29 of the 45 passengers survive the crash, and then they find themselves trying to survive in this hostile environment. The film was directed and co-written by J.A. Bayona. Manuel, what did you think of Society of the Snow? I mean, when you look at the logline, I think you know exactly what kind of movie you're getting, right? This is a survival drama uh, set in some of the most harshest weather you can imagine and the kind of most psychologically numbing uh, sort of circumstances you could even think of. This is a tough film. It's a it's not for the faint of heart, and, and I'm not <laughs> that. And it is, but it is so, what I found it was, I was most surprised by how much I was engaged. Because you think, oh, I know what happened. Oh, you know, this is a two and a half hour movie. They're going to crash. There's going to be a lot of like uh, snow and cold and fighting to see how we survive. Uh, and if you've seen Yellow Jackets, you may have an inkling of what also happened in order so they could survive for, you know, weeks and weeks on end. Uh, but Bayona is such a strong director that he's really uh, creates really gripping scenes, both when he's doing those like big action moments, like an avalanche coming. But he's also really great at bringing a humanity and a decency uh, to every single one of his characters. Uh, these are all real people. These are all real names. Uh, he worked, him and his team worked really closely with all of the survivors, trying to really honor their story and truly honor the story of those who didn't make it. So there are moments when um, as soon as a plane crashes, for example, you then see names on the screen of the people who died and their their ages. These are all 20, mostly 20-something-year-olds. Uh, so they're sort of thrown in trying to figure out how to survive and how to be a team. And they're a rugby team. So they're always looking to their to their leader. Um it's gripping, uh, but it's again, it's it, it's it's a tough watch. Understandably, Society of the Snow, which by the way is Spain's entry for consideration for the upcoming Oscars. Amy, yeah, honor definitely feels like the keyword that was driving this movie. You know, so much of the film is just looking at these young actors, most of them, you know, unknowns, first time films, second time films, um, just their faces. That I don't understand even how he got this like haunted bedraggled scrawny like suffering look in their faces but it gives you a lot of time to kind of soak it in the, the film is very straightforward and very earnest and you know if this at all sounds familiar to people as like the movie alive that was like the version of it that was made yeah. in the 90s starring like ethan hawk and there is something more moving about seeing this performed by people who are actually performing it in spanish who are like a lot more authentic to the character and and it does of course go I think the the trickiest part of it is it knows that there's it knows what the most famous part of this story is. It knows what fascinates people. It knows what they ate to survive. And it shows you the wriggly bits of flesh. But it wants to kind of also make sure it has enough time to have conversations about everything that that means and to try to really understand how hard it was. And it ends kind of at an interesting point because there was a moment when they got back and the and it kind of this their story was sort of told in full where people really panicked and got sort of upset but he ends it here at the point of just like we're glad they're home and it feels like that's the story he really wants to tell society of the snow spanish film directed and co-written by j.a bayona the film's rated r you can see it in select theaters and then it'll start streaming on netflix on january 4th we continue with our year-end film week here on Elias 89.3. Our trio of critics has several more movies to review when we come back in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. 
This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we close out 2023 with the final edition of Film Week. And I'm joined by critics Manuel Betancourt, Charles Solomon, and Amy Nicholson. Up next is the romantic comedy Anyone But You. It's directed by Will Gluck, who co-wrote the screenplay with Alana Wolpert, Sidney Sweeney, and Glenn Powell star. Amy, what did you think of Anyone But You? This is a rom-com that I was really, really, really rooting for and left feeling kind of let down. Um, the cast here, our two lovers, are Sydney Sweetie. You know, she, I think, is one of the most kind of interesting young talents who's been rising right now. And then Glenn Powell, who's also kind of one of her counterparts. Like, you might recognize him probably from Top Gun 2. Um, he also was in a really good rom-com a few years ago called Set It Up. So I was very excited for this movie. There are allegations that they like maybe broke up with their partners making it because they had such chemistry on the set. Always adds to the publicity side of a film. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And then here they are playing this couple that's sort of enduring what seems like a modern update of Much Ado About Nothing. You know, just the part of the Shakespeare play where these two people argue so much that all their friends around them are trying to get them to fall in love just so they'll stop being such absolute pains. Um, the background here is sort of strange. Like the setup is that they meet cute trying to get a bathroom key at a coffee shop. You know, it's kind of as meet cutes go. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit, it's a little bit body and scatological. Um, but then they have a lovely night and in the morning for this just sort of convenient pretext that really doesn't make sense. It should be very, very easy to straighten out. They decide that they absolutely hate each other. But because they are both friends with this couple who's getting married, they wind up in Australia at this destination wedding, making everybody's life miserable, setting things on fire, screaming and yelling and just insulting each other in so many creative ways that you think you could just have a simple conversation and this movie would be a lot shorter. Um, The movie, when it gets goofy, I found myself wanting to really root for it. There's kind of this runner in the film where there's no problem that can't be solved by the people just taking off their clothes for no reason. You know, this happens repeatedly. At one point when there is a fire, somebody just strips off her dress and uses it to batten down the flames. And you think in those moments, the movie is maybe knowing enough that it's really going to have some fun here. But it's also directed in kind of such an honestly inept fashion that I found myself being completely confused. I couldn't tell how much time had gone by since their first meet cute. I spent most of the movie thinking that they hadn't hooked up the first time they met because he opens their morning after shot with like a a clip of her like belt buckle firmly buckled in bed, which I thought was the international symbol of nothing happened. (laughs) But they talk about it like something did. So I was just very confused the whole way through. Um, I think if it was a little dumber, I would have really liked this more. (laughs) <laughs> We're talking about anyone but you. Rated R, it's in wide release. Time Bomb, Y2K, a documentary that takes us back to the start of the 21st century. It's uh, uh, produced by HBO Documentaries and directed by Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. Charles, what do you think of this doc? I found it very puzzling. It was clearly made by younger filmmakers who are fascinated by, like, old monitors that had the big all the structure in the back of it and the much simpler graphics that were available uh, in the late 1990s and the cruder games and the more limited resources. And there was the whole panic, uh, though I don't think it was as major as they portray it, of would Y2K, would everything not reset itself properly when we got to um, you know a year that didn't start with 19? They talk to survivalists. They talk to crackpot revivalists. They talk to some experts and some maybe not so expert experts about all of this. But you know nothing happened. So it becomes kind of like documenting those periodic uh, fundamentalist revivals where they announce the world will end on such and such a time and the followers go out and 
sell their property and get into winding sheets and sit on the roofs of their houses. And then, of course, the next day just starts like any other. Or when people were so concerned that the Mayan calendar was coming to the end of its period and it wasn't just going to be Mayans misstating their checks, this was also going to be the end of the world. Nothing happened. So it's... To Shakespearean, but you do about nothing. <laughs> uh, time bomb Y2K Manuel. I maybe this is maybe this is generational, Charles, because I, I I lived through. Oh, you're not that much older I than know. I am. Because <laughs> <laughs> to me, this was so. This is a documentary mostly made of archival news footage. So it's all spliced together of news broadcasts that begin, I think, in sort of like '96 all the way through, you know, December 31st in 1999. And so you're watching ABC News and NBC News and documentaries of the era, and you're sort of slowly seeing how Y2K sort of begins with this sort of like fear-mongering, like what's going to happen, the world's going to end, to even in the hours ahead uh, when news when you have Brian Williams actually on air saying, we are all trying to downplay the panic of what may happen tonight. So to me, the documentary, which is a little... Um, it does feel like it's made for those who did not live through this, um, like both Charles and I did, um, uh, to sort of understand and it's sort of a media study uh, as a way of how we were trying to think of the millennium and how it really felt at the time that this was going to be a turning point. And of course, the fact that you're getting uh, news about Putin getting into power and people being afraid of Osama bin Laden and the 2000 election coming up, and these are sort of sprinkled in between, you sort of get a sense that the the film really wants you to really remember a time (laughs) before a lot of things happened. uh, Yeah, and there's a lot lot of footage of uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore doing things like installing uh, new computer equipment in schools and talking about different issues. And then there's a a quick shot of uh, W uh, towards the end of it when he's won the election or won the Supreme Court. Uh, But again, since you know it doesn't happen, I... That was like you're trying to build up suspense, but you know there's no murder. <laughs> but it sounds like as a media study, at least, it is kind of interesting. Although I'd say, you know, if people had been listening to air talk at that time, they wouldn't have lost sleep. <laughs> well, you'll, this, you'll notice we, we weren't, weren't included in this, Larry. <laughs> I mean, you you would have, it would have been yeah, very low-key. It's like, well, you know, here's why people are overstating this. Time Bomb Y2K, the documentary is streaming on Max starting on December 30th. It's unrated, directed by Brian. Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. Memory, a film that stars Jessica Chastain, Peter Sarsgaard, and Brooke Timber. Uh, Michelle Franco is the writer and director of the film. Uh, it's a drama. Manuel, what'd you think of Memory? I'm very mixed, very mixed on Memory. I, I love both of these actors. Uh, Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard are some of the greatest talents of their generation. And here they're giving very, very complex and complicated uh, humans to inhabit. So she's this sort of single mother uh, social worker who lives um, in New York City and has a very tough and demanding job um, dealing with uh, people with disabilities. And uh, Sarsgaard plays this man's soul who's grappling with dementia. And uh, if I told you that and also told you this is a modern romantic drama... Uh, you would have maybe a hard time sort of imagining how those two things sort of um, come together. But that's what Franco is creating. He's sort of creating a very adult, very dour kind of rom-com that has no calm um, just because it's very it's very dramatic and it goes to very, very dark spaces as a lot of his films um, tend to go. Um, it doesn't quite go as violent as his, his other films have gone. But this goes to very, very dark emotional territory and it is hard to sort of follow through um, with how these two characters are grappling with these lives that uh, and these memories and these pasts that they're sort of trying to both escape and cannot live without. Um, it's a hard movie to to talk about without revealing yeah. a lot because I think it yeah, really depends that. on... Yeah, because it really depends. You really want to be following through how their relationship sort of blooms and what that might mean um, to how they've sort of made themselves live with the world. How's the chemistry? But I mean, they're both great actors. How's the chemistry? The chemistry is, is pretty great. And, and I think Franco it, it does a really good job of really making you, this feel like a really authentic 
sort of humane um, sort of story. And a lot of that has to do with the two of them. Sarsgaard won um, the the Best Actor Award at Venice this past year because of it. And it is a really um, calibrated, really um, beautiful performance. And Jessica Chastain nominated for Best Lead Performance at the Independent Spirit Awards. Memory, Amy. Yeah, I'm mixed on it too. In its own way, it is one of those kind of showy movies but showy in a style that's done very like gray and ordinary and drab but you could tell the actors are like working their hearts out to really hope that they're getting awards recognition here I mean in a way this movie kind of neatly lines up in places that I thought were sort of almost too tidy you know that kind of the thrust of it is that he is a man who can't remember anything you know or remembers things very spottily and she's a woman who's living with such trauma you know that goes kind of unspecified for a while but we really see the signs of it you know her fear she locks the doors all light she's an alcoholic she's in sobriety you know, um, sessions all the time she takes that very very seriously you know something happened to her when she was young that her family just sort of wishes she'd forget and so this kind of collision of like the man who can't remember and the woman who's holding on to too much of the past you know it has that kind of neat and tidy yin and yang feel but then from there the film gets like very blurry because it does sort of get into questions of you know consent um of of crossing the lines of blur of of blurring boundaries and what i sort of felt frustrated by this just at the ending is it kind of ends a little bit inconclusively it like raises a bunch of questions and then sort of bunts them but i will say the thing that the film really does well is it it's come up with a very good part for um the actress who is playing her daughter her teen daughter who's really at that pivotal age where she's understanding that life in her home is not quite ordinary, but she doesn't know what other adults she can trust to sort of give her a better life. You know, she's filled with a lot of empathy, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. And that part is just really, really well done. I feel like so much of the of the heart of this movie is just in that young character and her reactions to this very strange romance that's happening. We're talking about the film Memory, starring Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. It's unrated, and it's at AMC's Century City 15. And the George Clooney-directed uh, film, The Boys in the Boat, uh, set in the 1930s, the University of Washington's rowing team, uh, which is pointed toward the 36 Berlin Olympics. Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner star Mark L. Smith wrote the screenplay under Clooney's direction. Amy? Yeah, this is a very old-fashioned story about a true story, you know, that actually happened. The, you know, the University of Washington rowing team, the junior varsity uh, University of Washington rowing team, did manage to row all the way to the 1936 Olympics. There's a tiny bit of a misdirect here happening with the trailer. You know, if you saw the trailer, it's lots of shots of the Olympics, of Berlin. You know, there's Hitler in this movie kind of dramatically pounding his fist and being very engaged in rowing competitions. But the heart of the movie, the thing that Clooney is most interested in, is telling a story that's really about class in, here in America, class in a moment that's still very much suffering from the Great Depression, where, you know, the boys of this crew team are kind of working class state school kids who are only rowing to pay for college. You know, our main character, I must play by Callum Turner, you know, he wakes up, started the film in a, in a Hooverville, you know, ever since his dad left to find work when he was a young teen. And so it tells the story of this particular kind of team going up against like the more ivied monies or California here, Cal State, um, in trying to prove that, you know, working class boys can come together as a team as well. I mean, it's really done in just that classic, classic way of like sentimental music and clunky dialogue and, you know, beautiful golden shots of the sun hitting the water just so. And I found myself kind of frustrated that like a lot of the ideas this movie is trying to talk about, the themes, don't really seem to register. You know, there's a lot of talk in here about unity, about eight men coming into one. But I didn't really see how that happened. And most of the characters are kind of the strong type who don't really talk anyways. And only a few really register as individuals. Um, but the film, really... Like, what it has is it has um, probably more applause, more shots of applause than any movie I've seen of anything this year. I mean, movies, with, like, there's a scene here where, like, you really understand the excitement of people listening to regattas on the radio, which was kind of a newer technology at the time. Like, they say, you know, 300 million people listen to the live broadcast from Berlin, and it really feels like Clooney cuts to every single one of them, <laughs> you know. And he has spared no cost. Uh, he has spared no expense in the production design. I mean, the pennant budget, the pennant budget of just the little things waving in the air was huge. We're talking about The Boys in the Boat, directed by George Clooney, starring Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner. Manuel. 
Yeah, I, I keep thinking of this as a beautiful postcard of a movie, uh, the kind that reminds you that you just had to be there. Um, but I'm just going to send you this postcard in case you want to find out because uh, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. And I think to, to Amy's point, this is I mean, the title is called The Boys in the Boat, but you're really only following one boy. And I think structurally then that undercuts a lot of this message that the film is trying to create that is about team building, that is about we can come all together. But if you're just following one story and one man and he's supposed to stand in for the team, you're you're sort of creating an individual story about a, about a group. Uh, in this, um, from what I hear, the, non, the, the book is actually a much more robust retelling and it really follows all of the all of the boys in the boat, not just the one boy in the boat. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, it beautiful, beautiful, but off, often um, very empty. And yeah, you end up sort of cheering for the boys, but also in this case, if you know that they won gold, you sort of, um, you know where you're going. <laughs> boys in the Boat is the film. It's rated PG-13, wide release starting on Christmas Eve. In the couple of minutes we have left, I wanted to ask each of, of you just sort of briefly how you think 2023 has stacked up as a film year. Charles, let me start with you on the animation front. What do you think? Well, a very erratic year. We had... Uh, Super Mario Brothers setting a record for all-time animated films and a number of the uh, Japanese films broke records with Slam Dunk and one of the uh, One Piece films and we had some really, really interesting films from, of course, Miyazaki from Shinkai we had uh, Chicken for Linda that was a surprise that's been winning a lot of prizes and is charming uh, Robot Dreams has done very well but then the, what we would ordinarily think of as the tent poles have not done well. You know, Wish was a critical disaster and didn't make the any Disney money. Disney animated film. Nobody went to DreamWorks, Ruby Gilman. Uh, even the, the Ninja Turtles, as good a movie as that was, didn't really do as well as comparable to something like Spider-Verse. So an erratic year in my top ten had only nine in it. Wow. All right. <laughs> Manuel, uh, briefly, your thoughts about the, how this stacks up to other films, other, other years well, from wise. I mean, this uh, even just the fact that we get to talk about this here in terms of Barbenheimer, uh, I think does speak to a kind of like the return to the movies, which is a story that everyone's been trying to tell since, uh, you know, COVID happened and they, and you do feel it. And I do love thinking of the year on the one end, having like Greta Gerwig's like Pink Fantasia and on the other having Nolan's sort of, um, atomic musings. Uh, and I do think that there is, when you think of those two films and you think of them as, as sort of encompassing, there's a lot of range. And I did, I found everything in between. Yeah. It's a very wide ranging year. Amy, a quick closing comment. Yeah, from I you? think it's going to be an interesting year in the future, not so much even for the films themselves, but for what we're seeing in this big shift of like the tent poles collapsing and of people figuring out what makes, what makes movies work after that. But I do come into this year with like, a lot of optimism, you know, because what I see on the grounds, not even just in the movie theaters, but in the revival houses, packed houses, younger people, they are going to movies. I just want to see some ambitious stuff that really matches that. Speaking of shots of people applauding, we should do it <laughs> for that. Hey, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure as it is every year. And we'll be back with a brand new film week on the first week of January. My thanks to our critics joining us this week. Manuel Betancourt, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.